We study billionaires, and this is episode 120 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Seoul, South Korea. And folks, we have the one and the only... Monish Pabrai with us today. And I know our audience is going to love this conversation because Monish, you might not realize this, but we have a lot of fans of yours in our audience. So we are so thrilled to have you here to talk with us today. Well, Stegan Preston, I've really enjoyed listening to many of your podcasts in the past, and you're doing a great service to the value community. And I love the energy and the spirit you bring to it. So this is, this is wonderful. And I just want to put out there that anyone who thinks that, well, Preston just cooked it up, he's really trying to flatter our new guest, I would encourage everyone to go back to the very first episodes that we actually did. And the very first interview we had was actually an interview called Monish Popri, the next Warren Buffett. That was actually the very first we did. So this is not something that we uh, came up with. So back in episode four with our good friend Hari Ramachandra, now a member of Mastermind Group, that was the topic. And now we have you on. So it only took us. What, 116 episodes? <laughs> We're slow starters, but we will get there. Well, better late than never. That's right. That's right. Munish, we're so honored. So let me kick this off with the first question. And just so everyone knows, we had a ton of people that wrote us over Twitter saying, hey, ask Munish this question, ask him this. And so we've incorporated some of those questions into this show. So we might even name a few people from their questions. All right. So the first question, Munish, that we have comes from Nick Fisher on Twitter. And he wants to know if you would have taken a different career path if you wouldn't have found this Buffett-style investing first. So he's really curious because you have this tech background that a lot of people know about. And I guess what he's getting at is if you know what you knew today, would you have still gone down that tech path or would you have just gone straight into value investing right out of the gate? Well, that's a kind of a funny or interesting question for me because... When I was a undergraduate student at Clemson University in South Carolina, I was an engineering major, but I had a very deep interest in finance and economics and business. And so I took as many classes as I could in the business school. And I was a good student. But what I noticed is that the classes I took, especially the accounting and finance classes that I took in the business school, I top those classes. And I wasn't a finance major. And there were all these guys who were finance majors in the class and talked them to the point that most of the time when I took those classes, I had such a high score going into the final that usually I would get exempted from even appearing for the final. So after a few of these classes, the professor asked me to come to his office. And I was, I think I was a junior or just becoming a senior then. So He said, look, I did some digging and I see that you're not a finance major, that you're a engineering major who's kind of coming over here to take these classes. And he says, I don't know what kind of engineer you are, but I think you're in the wrong major and I think you need to move over. Now, my impression of and with a jaundiced view of my classmates in the business school 
were that they were all morons because these classes were super simple. <laughs> and, and when I took engineering classes, I mean, many times I get my head handed to me. And uh, those were really hard classes. So to me, coming into what was in Clemson Serene Hall was like a walk in the park. This was like, you know, these were the easy, you know, straight A classes. And so I said, why would I want to change my major to have a bunch of peers who are such underperformers, if you will? <laughs> and so I told the professor, well, I appreciate your sentiments and I appreciate you telling me not to show up for the final. And you appreciate you telling me I got my A, so that's all great. But I think I'm going to continue uh, down the path that I'm on. And I'll keep taking any more classes that I can. And this was in like 85, I think 84 or 85, when I was uh, had this conversation. And about 10 years later, in uh, 94, I heard about Warren Buffett just by accident. You know, I was an engineer, I was running an IT company. And I picked up a random book on a flight from London to Chicago. And that book by Peter Lynch basically opened up a brand new world for me. And I, then that led me to Warren Buffett and then the Berkshire Letters. And that led me to do a lot of changes to my life. So in some ways, kind of fate took me to a fork in the road when I was 20 and I blew it. And I took the wrong fork, if you will. And then it again introduced a fork in the road when I was 30. And this time I was a little bit more sensible. And I think I took the right fork, the road less traveled. And I remember a few years after that, when I was about 35 and I was selling my IT company, you know, I was talking to some of my senior employees and I was telling them that I was going to be starting an investment partnership and, and so on. They couldn't understand why I would step down into the world. Why would you go from technology to, you know, lowly finance? And so, so they couldn't understand it. And, you know, I told them that the reason I was doing that wasn't driven by money or anything. It was just driven by what I enjoyed doing. And so, uh, so I said, look, I don't really look at it that way, that one thing is a pedestal, you know, higher or lower than the other. Like I did when I was 20, that's all. When I was 20, I did those, you know, high life, low life kind of comparisons. But I think when I was 35, I, I had a little bit more sense in me. And actually, that was the absolutely right thing to do. So life is a very random journey. I am here talking to you because I picked up a book at Heathrow Airport and it could have been a book on a number of different subjects and such. So I think the, the lesson I've learned is that Many times in life, we are intrigued or fascinated or kind of very obsessed with something new that shows up. And, you know, there's a Swami, uh, Swami Vivekananda, who is a fantastic, very bright, bright guy. And he has a he has a quote. He says, take a simple idea and take it very seriously. And what I have noticed in my, you know, 30 odd years career is that it is always surprising to me that most humans, when they encounter simple ideas that are very compelling, do not take the left turn that they should. And life is a journey where there are times where you have to take the bull by the horn. And you have to be willing to say, no, the glove fits better if I take this left turn. Yeah, there are some uncertainties involved. But if you're not willing to be a little adventurous 
and uh, explore the unknown, then it's going to be an unexamined life. It, it actually would be a life poorly lived, if you will. So I think that it's uh, one of the lessons I've learned from that random book and the professor having the talk with me and so on and so forth is that I pay attention to things that intrigue me. It's very important for us to pay especially close attention when they are kind of off the beaten path that we might normally take. And I can say that, for example, even our family foundation, Dakshana, which is uh, somewhat unusual, came about because of the willingness to step off the beaten path. So I think embedded in that question is a great insight that we will, nearly all of us will have times in our lives when forks are presented. And no one's going to put up a headline saying, hey, here's a fork and take the left fork. That's not going to happen. But you will clearly see that there is something out there which is intriguing you. Take the plunge. You can always come back, but take the plunge. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. 
That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You know, and I, when I look at your background, I would think that as a stock investor, because you had these years of experience in tech running your own business, that, and I think you see this mistake all the time on Wall Street where guys, they get the finance degree, they then go and work on Wall Street and they, they're making selections in the equity market or fixed income market. And they never have that firsthand experience of running a real business themselves. And when you've had that vantage point of what's behind the curtain of, of a real business and running it and all the, the operations, the marketing, all that stuff, how can't you be a better stock investor after you've had that experience? And I guess when I'm looking at you from an outsider's point of view, I would think that that had such a profound impact on your ability to be a better stock investor when that time kind of arrived in your life. That's right. You know, Buffett has a quote, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman and I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. You know, I never realized it when I was taking those finance classes as an undergrad. But the reason I found them simple wasn't because I had a higher IQ than my classmates or I was smarter than my classmates. I had had a very different life experience related to business between the age of 10 or 11, all the way till I entered that classroom. And my father was a serial entrepreneur. He had many bankruptcies. And after my brother and I were, I think, 11 or 12 years old, we were like his board of directors because he didn't really have a board. It was these small businesses. And many times when I'd sit down with my father when I was 12 years old in the evening, we had to figure out how to make the business run for one more day with whatever cash there was. And then we would make it run for one more day. And then again, the next day we'd sit down and say, how do we make it run for one more day? And so by the time I was 19, I think I'd finished several MBAs, you know, and what they still don't teach you at Harvard Business School, <laughs> you know, so, so it was great. And I never realized that because I just, it was really much later in life when I became an investor and I found that these things came really easily to me. And I realized they didn't come so easily to a lot of other people who are really smart. And the reason is the human brain, the human brain is set up. I mean, first of all, the brain, because of the narrowness of the birth canal, is one of the most underdeveloped organs when we are born, because, you know, you just can't have childbirth otherwise. So the brain is, is an organ that goes through the most growth of any organ in the first five years of life. And you have just tremendous growth going on because it it's just bursting to get to where it needs to. And you see a human child, just the exponential cognitive abilities growing over that period. But once we become about 12 years old, 11 or 12 years old, from the age of about 11 or 12 to about 19 or 20, during that window, the brain actually cuts connections. So the synapse connections go up a lot in the first five years. And from about 11 or 12 to about 19 or 20, they go down. And not only do they go down, but the brain is optimally set up to specialize at that time. And so what needs to happen for humans is from the age of 11 or 12, if they have figured out their calling, they need to be going all in. Five years spent from, you know, 13 to 18 in what is going to be your calling in life is going to give you significantly more advantage than 20 years later. And we see this with Michelangelo. We see this with Bill Gates. We see this with Warren Buffett. On and on. I mean, you look at these, uh, you know, 
when people start lemonade stands when they're 13 years old, the experience of the lemonade stand at 13 is very critical for having the skills to run IBM when you're 50. If you didn't run the lemonade stand at 13, you're going to have a much more difficult time. So when you study great business leaders and you study their histories, you're going to find that there was stuff going on in their lives. Even if you look at Steve Jobs with all his interaction with his dad and you know all the intense focus on perfection, even on areas that people would never see, you know, all those things that Jobs went through, those things happened in his teen years. And, you know, I think my middle name should be Forrest Gump. I basically accidentally, because of my dad, you know, he wasn't aware of any of this, neither was I. I very accidentally got a very intense intro to business during a period of time when my brain was optimized to pick it up. And so what a beautiful thing and what a random thing. And one of the unfortunate things about the way our society is set up is we do not allow high schoolers to specialize. We expect high schoolers to be jack of all trades, you know, take your humanities and take your sciences and take your math and take everything else, you know. And the one country that's actually taken a different path is Germany. And Germany starts, you know, segmenting out the kids when they're 11 or 12 into whether they're going to go to college or whether they're going to be factory workers and such. And what you have in Germany is that one of the highest wage countries in the world is a manufacturing powerhouse because German manufacturing workers started on those factory floors when they were 13 years old. And no U.S. workers start on the factory floor at 13 years old. And so it is a tremendous advantage and I think that one of the things, if there are parents listening to this, you know, try to optimize those years. You know what Bill Gates used to do? So he was a high school student in the U.S., forced to do all kinds of things that all of the high school students are forced to do. But every night after his parents tucked him in, he snuck out of the window, snuck into his computing lab at the high school, spent all night coding. Then at 5.30 in the morning, he's come back home and go back to sleep. And he did that for several years. I mean, and by the time Bill Gates was 19, he had more experience on a computer than probably 99.999% of the people in the country at that time. So even with Buffett, you know, he jokes that he bought his uh, first stock when he's 11 years old and he was wasting his time till then. And, you know, so at the age of five or six, Buffett was buying a six pack of Coke for a quarter from his tight-fisted grandfather, Ernest, and then, you know, selling it for a nickel apiece. I mean, he started getting lessons in business when he was six. And by the time Warren was about 18 or 19, he had run several very significant size businesses. And we would not have the Warren Buffett that we have if he did not have that experience from the age of 6 to 19. I love that conversation. As a parent myself, you know, that's something that I can really think about a lot as I raise my two youngest who aren't even close to that age right now. And as they get older, I'm going to remember this conversation. So thank you for sharing that. When they say that, you know, at 14, they want to drop out, please encourage them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mani, so this would be uh, the next question. So, I saw an interview with you where you said that having an analyst employed really didn't work out for you. And I suspect that one reason might be because unconsciously one would feel 
pressure to continuously invest in something for the sake of investing and not because it's necessarily the right decision. And the reason I come to think of this is because when we talk to your friend Guy Spear, he mentions what he calls his New York Vortex, which was his way of explaining how one is influenced by the environment and in this situation in a negative way. So my question would be, how do you build a life where you can keep your head straight, but at the same time be influenced by the right environment and not the wrong environment? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, I lucked out quite significantly because, number one, I never worked in the investment business for anyone. I never worked in any any company. And the only models that I was familiar with before starting my own investment fund and such was Warren and Charlie. I mean, those were the ones that I spent the most time studying and everything that they were doing or had done had made all the sense in the world to me. So when I was going to set up a partnership, I looked very carefully at how Warren and Charlie had done it. In fact, what I did was I took certain pages of Lowenstein's book and I photocopied them and gave them to the lawyer. I said, look, here are the partnership rules, yeah. page you know, 37, whatever it is, and uh, put that in you know, legal language. And that's what we're going to do. I literally just took pages from the book to set up the partnership. So. There were several aspects to the way Warren and Charlie ran their operations and ran their lives when they were running investment partnerships. And some of these things I understood when I was starting my own partnership. Others, I did not understand the reason, but I still just cloned it because there was no other model available to me. And what I discovered several years later is every single one of the rules that they followed were rules that had been very intensely thought through by these two really smart guys. And they weren't random chance that those rules were there. So one of the rules both of them had was they had no analysts. And even today, Buffett has no analysts. And if you think about it, he's got 90 CEOs reporting to him. He's got, you know, I don't know, more than 400 billion of capital. And he's playing, I don't know, 15 hours a week of bridge. And one would think that he's got all these billions and he could pretty much ask anyone to come work for him and they would come work for him, right? And they'd come work for him for pennies or nothing, even if, if that were the case. So, but even with all of those conditions, he still does not have an analyst and neither does Charlie Munger. And I didn't really understand it when I started my partnership. I just said, okay, the model is to go zero fee and performance-based Fee structures, the other part of the model seems to be that you work alone, you don't have partners or analysts or staff. And it's only later that I discovered when I thought about this and I've been running the funds that it is a huge advantage not to have an investment team in many ways as an oxymoron. Even though we accept it as, you know, common wisdom that you set up a partnership or an investment operation that you're going to have analysts and managing partners and all this sort of thing, that is all hogwash. I mean, the bottom line is that investing is not a team sport. It should never be a team sport. And Buffett says that no part of the investment analysis process ought to be outsourced. So if you have analysts then what's going to happen is basically you are not going to know the businesses that you're investing in as well as your analyst does. I mean, you're going to have the Cliff Notes version of those businesses in your head. And quite frankly, that's not enough. 
you need to know the businesses. The second is there are bound to be circle of competence differences between any two humans. And so if you have an analyst, by definition, their circle of competence is different from yours. And so they could actually come up with a great idea, which is within the circle of competence. You're too dumb to understand it because it's not in yours. And you reject it, which is a disservice to that person because they did the right thing. They came up with the right idea. You were just an idiot. You couldn't understand it. And the third thing is that many times when I talk to analysts at different firms, you know, like uh, the other day, a, a young man came in my office and he was telling me how he's been assigned railroads. He works for a very large fund house, I think more than 100 billion in assets. He's been assigned railroads and one or two other kind of things to study. That's his kind of focus. And he was telling me, Monish, it's not railroads. He was assigned U.S. railroads. So he said, Monish, there's four U.S. railroads. And one of them is private, which is Berkshire Hathaway's Burlington Northern. So he said, I got three railroads to study. And I try to tell these guys, I've studied them all. And they're not, not the best things I would invest in. But what he's asked to do in his job is, you know, tell us which railroad is the best railroad. Well, that's the wrong question. The question should be, tell us where we should put our money out of the entire universe of possibilities. Yeah. Right. And if railroads are useless, well, forget about railroads. Let's go study something else. But every day when he goes to work, he has to think about railroads. And what a miserable existence. So I think that's the other thing is that when we set up investment teams, we are taking away human potential. If I were to have analysts, what would end up happening is that those analysts would not be able to have the freedom to do anything they wanted if the structure was anything like any of the other firms. So well, one shouldn't have an investment team. I've never had an analyst or an associate, and I hope I never do. Very, very interesting discussion. Some of the inspiration that you're getting, that's from the 13Fs filing from other fund managers. But even when you have those and you're looking at, for instance, what Warren Buffett has bought or call it Kai Icon, whatever it might be, doesn't mean you don't call up Guy or any of your other friends and ask them, so what do you think about this? pick? Is it just between you and the screen, so to speak? Yeah, no, that's a great question. In fact, I did not talk much to anyone about my investments. I was just kind of doing it on my own. And I remember I met Charlie Munger. I think when I met him, the first time I met him was in 2009. And right in the first meeting, Charlie had asked me a bunch of questions. And he told me that it's very important for an investor to have people to talk to. And then he said, you know, I've always had people to talk to about my investments. So I said, oh, you mean like Warren? And he said, no, it wasn't always Warren. For several years, it was Warren and, and such, but there's already been someone. And he said it was a very important thing for me to change in my modus operandi. And of course, you know, when God tells you to do something, you, you know, <laughs> salute and do it. And so I came back from that lunch. I said, you know, we're going to make a tweak, which is we're not going to have a staff because that's not what he's telling me to do is hire analysts and such. And one of the one of the things about talking to people who are not on your payroll is that you get rid of kind of vested interests and conflicts and those sorts of things. So if you can identify it's it's important to identify the right person. And if you can identify the right person or people, 
that you can bounce ideas off of and talk about different things. What's going to end up happening is that all of us have blind spots and other people process things just kind of differently. And it just so turned out that around that time, I had actually the Warren Buffett lunch brought Guy and me together. It made us friends, really. We just have our acquaintances before that. And I decided that, you know, it sounds like he might be a good person to bounce things off of. So I tested it and it seemed to work really well because every time I, I talked to him about something, he would mumble some some things. But those would be really things that were spectacular, which I had not thought about. And so I found that these conversations were really good. And these conversations were actually bringing up things that were truly blind spots for me. And so I started seeing value in those conversations and I've continued them since 2009 and it's been extremely useful and beneficial. It's a a very good addition to my mental models to have that. So the thing is, I think that an investment team is a bad idea, but having people that you can bounce things off of, especially people who do not have any kind of biases or vested interests, that can be really good. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there and keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. 
So Monish, I know you've had different engagements with Charlie and Warren since your initial meeting that you had with Guy. Through all those different engagements that you had with these two, what would you say is the best question that they've ever asked you or maybe something that really sticks out in your mind that just really made you say, wow, I never even considered that or just one of those experiences would be so profound for our audience to hear. You know, the thing that I found very intriguing is, so uh, let me take a step back and let me take you all the way back to when I was in third grade before I answer your question. So when I was in third grade, I had extremely low self-esteem. I remember in my third grade class, there were like something like 70 or 75 kids. It was a very big classroom. And I remember I was seated like way at the back, you know, kind of 15 rows back or something. And I also remember that I basically had no clue what was going on in the class. You know, there was someone would come and mumble, jumble, talk about something or put something, but I had no clue. And when I used to take tests and such, I had no idea what to do, you know? And I remember my report card in third grade was that I was uh, 67th out of 70 kids in my class, you know? And I'm surprised I wasn't 70th because there must have been like three carrots in the class or something because (laughs) I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. So I always figured that I had gotten the kind of the, the short straw in terms of intellect and such, and that I was a significantly below average person. And my grades reflected that all the way till I think I got to ninth grade. I was always a below average student till I got to ninth grade. And in ninth grade, I was in a really good school. It was like a very competitive school. I mean, out of... I, I switched a lot of schools when I was a kid. This particular school, the Air Force School in Delhi, was a school which had the highest quality students that I'd ever been with. I mean, they were, it was a very challenging and very good school. And they brought in some outside people and they did some testing and they basically did an IQ test on our class. And they were like, what, you know, 40 odd kids in the class, maybe 45 kids. And this was kind of like one of those, you know, Mensa type IQ tests. And when I took the test, I ranked number one in the class. Not only did I rank number one in the class, they told me I didn't miss a single question. So they told me that my IQ was above 180. Okay. And so I, the first time in my life that I'd ever taken any kind of test where I wasn't in the bottom half. Okay. And it was not even in the top half. I was number one. And there were a lot of smart kids in the class. So I went to the two guys who had come to conduct the test quietly. I was like this, you know, 14 year old kid. And I said, Hey, you know, sir, can I just ask you some questions about this test? You know, he said, yeah, you did really well. And I said, you know, what does it mean? He said, Oh, you're super smart. Okay. So I said, yeah, but you know, my grades and on my classes, I do horribly. I know my grades are useless. They spent less than two minutes. They said, oh, because you're not applying yourself. He says, clearly, if you work hard and you apply yourself, you will do well. And I don't know if you guys saw the movie Seabiscuit. I had no. Oh, you're missing out. Both of you got to see the movie. So anyway, Seabiscuit was this amazing horse. And in order for him to win the race, he had to come head to head with another horse. It could be a loser horse, but he had to spend some time with this other horse going head to head. And then he would just take off. And then he blow all the horses out of the field. So I felt like after that two-minute conversation in ninth grade, I was like Seabiscuit. I just took off. 
And what I found is every few months, my rankings in the class started improving. So from being 30th rank, I came to 25th rank, then I came to 20th rank. And I saw every few months I was moving up. And by the time I finished 10th grade, I was in the top half, which was amazing. By the time I finished 12th grade, I finished high school. I was third in my class in the school, a third out of the entire school. And then by the time I finished college, I was number one. I, you know, was summa cum laude and all that. So it's almost like, you know, someone just tells you something, right? But the low self-esteem takes a long time to go away because, you know, it's so deeply built in. And when I met Warren and Charlie, one of the things that stood out for me the most is they told me, Charlie has repeatedly told me that you're off the charts bright, Monish. You're phenomenal at this investing stuff. Okay. And when he says that to me, you know, God is saying something like this to you. <laughs> I am in disbelief. And part of the reason I'm in disbelief is because I have this, you know, long history of being a low self-esteem person. And I remember somewhere, I think I read a quote or a book somewhere where, you know, the way I feel about Warren and Charlie is, I don't believe what they tell me, but I have a belief in their belief. So what I mean by that is that I know that they can't be wrong, but because I am kind of screwed up mentally because of all this low self-esteem, if someone just tells me, hey, you're great, that doesn't sink in. Yeah. But if I respect a person, then I have a respect for their viewpoint. So one of the things that has been the most beneficial aspect of the interaction with Warren and Charlie has been that they have helped put a mirror in front of me. Whether that mirror is a real mirror or a funny mirror, I don't know which way it is. But clearly what it has done for me is it has given me a little kind of wind on my back, if you will, where I say, okay, you know, I'm actually, I might actually be pretty good at this. And we have these guys who are the, you know, the patron saints. And it's not so much Warren. I think Warren is a little bit more reserved about what he says and doesn't say. I think it's been more Charlie than Warren. And of course, I've had a lot more interaction with Charlie than with Warren. Or one of the reasons is because he's in California, as I am. So the one thing that has stood out for me is that they've talked to this crony kid from Mumbai and given this kid all kinds of great perspectives, which have been tremendous for the kid to hear. It's been great. So I think that's one thing that I will always cherish and remember. The second thing that stands out for, for me, for both of them, is how beautifully and carefully they've laid out their life. I mean, the thing is that what Warren and Charlie have done is they've looked at this kind of playing field that they're playing this game in and they've figured out a way to play it in a very unorthodox manner, but they're playing it in a manner that plays to exactly what their strengths are. And the execution, you know, many times when I talk to Charlie, he'll tell me things like, that's not our system. This is not our system. This is our system. And I don't hear him talk about the system so much in public. You know, it's come up in the private conversations. And what I glean from that is that they've spent a lot of time thinking about how they go about it. So, for example, Warren believes that the real control he has is in the selection of the CEO or the manager of a business. 
he has no control beyond that selection because the only other thing he can do is he can let the person go. He does not believe that he can tell the person what to do. All he can do is pick the person. Mm. And this is a tremendous insight. And what this does is it gives him infinite bandwidth to have 200 managers reporting to him because none of them are looking to him to figure out what they ought to be doing. They've been told very clearly, send the excess cash to Omaha and beyond that, run your affairs and run your affairs as if your family owned this business for the next 100 years. Just use that. And, you know, there's a beautiful uh, Ben Franklin saying, which is only four words, when in doubt, don't. So Warren, you know, sends a letter to his manager saying that we can lose a lot of money and we don't care. But if we lose a shred of reputation, we care a lot about that. So always remember that. But he also says that if you're ever confused about whether a particular course of action is correct or not, just call me. But he also says in the letter, but when you have that doubt in your head, you already know the answer that you don't need to go there. So what I'm saying is that they have optimized the time they spend on what they are able to accomplish and the efficiency of that. I mean, two guys talking periodically on the phone built one of the greatest businesses on the planet. It's incredible. It's incredible what they built. And I do believe that this is true because having, having interacted, especially with Charlie, you know, Charlie repeatedly says that we do fewer dumb things than the others rather than a bunch of brilliant things. And I have to agree with that because most of the things that they do are basically common sense, wise things to do if you think about it. During the lunch with uh, Warren Buffett, I'd asked him a question. You know, I asked him, you know, Mr. Buffett, if you could have lunch with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have lunch with? And he said, well, I'd love to have lunch with Sophia Loren. And then, then he said, okay, you know, like scratch that answer. Uh, he said, no, I'd, I'd really like to have lunch with Isaac Newton. And I probed him a little bit. I said, why, why Isaac Newton out of all the humans? Why do you want to have lunch with Isaac Newton? He said he believes that Newton is probably the smartest guy who ever walked this earth. Huh. And so he said, it would just be fascinating for me to be able to sit down with a person like that and talk to them. And then, you know, Immediately in the next sentence, he says, he says, you know, Newton was the smartest, but Franklin was the wisest. And that is the difference. I think the thing is that neither Warren nor Charlie, they're very smart people. But what they've relied on for their success is not their smarts. They've relied on their wisdom. And most of the wisdom, if you look at the wisdom of Ben Franklin, it's common sense after you read it. But it's not obviously common sense before you encounter it. And so that's been the other thing that, you know, many of the things that Warren and Charlie say, we kind of say, okay, you know, that makes sense. But what the meetings have helped me calibrate is what is really important. And what I've been able to calibrate is that, yes, these guys are smart, but there are lots of people who are very smart. And it's not about IQ. This is not a game about IQ. This is a game about wisdom. And this is a game about making less mistakes than the others. And if you take the mistake, the error rate down, then it works out very well. All right, Munish, this is all the time we have for the first part of the interview. For anybody, if you're enjoying this interview, it even gets better in the second week. So make sure you guys tune in next week to hear the rest of the interview. I want to throw it over to Munish really fast so that he can give you a handoff to some of his websites 
and places where you can go and find out more about him. So Monish, tell people where they can find out more information about you. Yeah. And actually one great resource that I really like a lot is YouTube. And I have a YouTube channel. It's called Monish Pabrai. And one of the things I really enjoy is speaking to students. And what I've always tried to do when we have these conversations with students is we try to record them and we try to put them on YouTube. And it's been a lot of fun. So I've been doing Boston College for several years. I just did UC Irvine. For the first time, I spoke to students in China at Peking University. And so those are all on the YouTube channel. And I think you'll enjoy those as well. So thank you. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We'll see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to the Investors Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to the Investors Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.